Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to Magnified with Matt Cooper, the latest episode in this podcast series which gives me an opportunity to speak to people at more length, in more detail than is possible on The Last Word at Today FM. An opportunity to talk to very interesting people who have great backstories, who are doing very interesting things to allow us to examine the big themes that are of great interest to people in Ireland at present. Now, today's guest is not somebody you may necessarily have heard of, but he's an exceptionally interesting person who has done extraordinary things. He recently became a director of RT, a part-time director, and we'll get to that towards the end of the podcast. But he's also an expert in the future of work, particularly in the use of artificial intelligence and how that's going to become a much bigger part of how we all work in the future. He's Professor of Economics in MIT in Boston and also in Trinity College Dublin dealing with these issues, which we'll talk about in just a little while. But he also recently climbed Mount Everest. That's right, he went to the top of Mount Everest because mountain climbing is one of his obsessions. And that's where we start this edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper with Jonathan Ruan. The first thing I want to talk to you about, though, is Mount Everest, because you climbed Mount Everest recently. What possesses you to become a mountain climber? And what was it like getting to the top of Everest? Uh, well, they're definitely two different questions. You have to be climbing for quite a while before you get to the top, or at least that's the way I did it. Um, so what originally... Um, possessed me to get into it I have always kind of done a few different adventure sports so I had um probably my uh, you know teens I played Gaelic football like most people I still played some Gaelic when I moved to London that was in my 20s but as you get a bit older that wasn't necessarily an option anymore I was traveling a lot and I took up running and so I started doing long distance running marathon running then ultra marathon running and it just got kind of longer so and longer ju- just there. explain most people understand marathon running and I do because my wife's a marathon runner as well but ultra marathon what's the difference Essentially, an ultramarathon is any distance longer than a marathon. So I guess technically that would be 43 kilometers and up. But generally speaking, they start, the, the lower ones start at 50 kilometers and then they go up from there. So they can be, I've done some of them more than 100 kilometers long. I did one in the Sahara Desert. That's multi-day one. That's about 250 kilometers. And, and also then there's just all kind of random combinations of it. It's not near as defined as the regular marathon. So the terrain will often be a lot more, um, well, different than a regular road marathon where, you, you know, on a regular road marathon, if you have three or 400 meters of elevation across the entire marathon, well, that might put you off in terms of uh, too much gain. But, um, you know, for a lot of ultra marathons where you're doing them in unusual places, the terrain will often be more difficult than the distance so like for example the perfect one is the Sahara Desert we're crossing enormous sand dunes at one stage in one of the legs we had to cross the second highest sand dune in the world so the actual distance sounds like it's a lot but you're more worried about uh, what's underneath your foot for example sand is a lot more difficult to run than um, than rock and and also like things like elevation gain and and all this kind of stuff so there you know that's a very short summary of ultramarathons and I was never that fast of a marathon runner. You know, I was never going to be the early 
you know, the, or even I was never going to be the mid two hours. And so, Sorry, I don't know, how fast could you run a conventional <laughs> 43 kilometer marathon in 26 miles? In around three hours, so three hours or maybe a little bit more marathon. That's a hour. very good time. It's a decent time, but I wasn't getting any faster. And I was probably not training that well. When I look back, I didn't actually know that much about how to train or whatever. I would run because it was it's a very easy activity to do. As long as you have a pair of runners, no matter where in the world you are, you can always go for a run. And um, that's how I, I started. But, you know, the ultramarathon does take its toll, maybe because I wasn't training so well. I don't know. Maybe there's just a natural biomechanical challenge for anybody who wants to do it. But I did pick up quite a, a significant ankle injury. So I'd been at it several years at this stage and my ankle just really blew up on me. I mean, like to the point that it would be um, a real problem everyday life. So walking would be a problem. If I was going to go on a city break, I'd be thinking, well, you know, that's not really an option for me anymore. Um, And uh, I started, uh, you know, engaging with the medical field. I had a number of operations here in Ireland, a number of operations in the US. And for a long time, it looked like it was never going to get better. So the um, I received the advice from two different surgeons to just fuse the joint, which basically means that that's the end of running. I'm still in my, I can't remember, like early, mid-30s, something like that. It was certainly going to be the end of running, but it would also be the end of the pain, and the pain was quite significant at all times. So I did consider it, but thankfully I kept asking for maybe a little bit, another another um, perspective. And I have a good friend in the United States, Michael Prendergast. He's a, a doctor at one of the top hospitals hospitals and I asked him he's, he's an athlete he's very athletic as well as being a, um, a doctor but I asked him for a recommendation he found me the name of a guy at a Boston hospital we had an operation and 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 some and different work he did on me and all that kind of stuff and it just came good but not the fusion <clears throat> not the fusion no we went with like you know a couple of other operations and eventually it got to the point um, with a lot of physio as well thankfully I, I, I maintained a physio all the way through who kind of gets to know your body and stuff a guy called Aidan Tighe in, in Balna actually who himself is very athletic has an All-Ireland medal or two and he at one stage just said to me look you've kind of had enough operations we've looked at the scans just start using it putting a lot of pressure on it actually and it, and, and with that and some physio and that kind of stuff it it got to the point there was no pain but at that stage then I gave up I said I'm not going to go back to ultramarathon running I had done plenty so what was the attraction of ultramarathon running in the sense that physically far more demanding as you've just explained i mean i know running in sand any of us have even tried running on the beach know how difficult running in sand is so you do it in the sahara you do it in the baking heat you do it over longer distances yeah why do you do that I think you don't you don't ever wake up one day and it's just like having never run that this is the plan. That's not how it works for me. I would do, let's call it a certain race and I would get to the end of it and I would think that wasn't so bad. Now, maybe during it, I'm cursing myself for ever attempting it, but you would manage to get through it and a few weeks later, you'd kind of forget about it, uh, forget about the real pain and difficulty and you'd say, well, if I can do that, maybe I can do the next one. And that's how you end up at you know, after several years running these very extreme races. So it kind of builds on top of each and other. And is a sense of fulfillment and achievement? Or is it that you can break physical barriers, that you prove to yourself mentally that you're able to do it? What is it? Yeah, I mean, you, you, I suppose you're asking me to dissect a thought process that maybe wasn't so linear at the time. So I can give you an answer, but I'm not necessarily sure it sums up 
the meandering thoughts over several years. So oftentimes it's also a friend of yours signs up for something and he says, well, you know, I have a couple of, I have a friend in, in France, another one in the UK that we used to do stuff all over Europe with and they would say, we're signed up for it and that's it, you're doing it. So, you know, there's all these kind of like, um, uh, you, you immerse yourself in a field and all of a sudden you start learning about the next thing and the next thing and you meet new people who do another thing and cumulative, then you look back on it like I'm doing with you now and it sounds like th- there was certainly no master plan, that's for sure. So how did you get into mountain climbing? Well, I gave, I, I said I'd never go back doing the very long distance run and I knew that wasn't an option. Or at least if it was, if I went back and did it, that, uh, you know, I was at a high risk of, of, of um, having the same ankle problems again. So I had climbed mountains before, maybe, you know, when I was in my 20s, I had done simple stuff in the Alps, Mont Blanc and stuff like that, like most people. I love done. the way you call that simple stuff. <laughs> well, to most people, that would just be impossible. <laughs> well, it's, it's non-technical mountain and, you know, it's very available to anybody who wants to do it maybe not straight away with a little bit of training and a fitness and you know if you work if you go out there with somebody who knows what they're doing Um, but so I had climbed mountains before and I figured that that was there was far less steps involved honestly like you look at um, ultramarathon running you're pounding your ankle all the time I was like well here's something that's there's a never-ending infinite amount of challenges and at the same time, I'm not going to be pounding on my ankle anymore. So I got back into, I would say I got back into, I started taking mountaineering a bit more seriously. Hold on, surely there must still be significant pressure on your legs and your feet and your ankle in mountaineering. I mean, There certainly is, but just actually for the maintenance of my ankle as it is, or the particular set of problems I have, I need to keep active on it. I can't actually stop using it. If I did, it, um, it would kind of like, uh, this is non-medical of course, but it would kind of seize up on me. Yeah, sure. So I need to keep using it. So, um, and I can still run. I can, you know, I can go out for a 20K run or train and run or something like that. And, 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 and it won't cause me any problems, but I can't go back to the ultramarathon running. Or at least if I did and I caused another problem, I mean, like I'd feel so stupid. So um, I kind of made my peace. I was happy enough with what I did with the running. Okay, so you got into the mountain climbing. So how did the ambition to climb Everest come about? Um, again, cumulative over several years so i you know there there are different types of mountain climbing of course many different types and um, mountaineering which is you know high altitude mountaineering is only one type it's not the only type i do or i'm interested in but i certainly i started climbing some larger mountains i've you know i've climbed at for people who don't know i mean like everest is nearly nine thousand meters just short so it's eight thousand eight hundred and 40 something i can't remember i should know that one uh 8848 i think is right it just got readjusted it's 8849 and um so that's at the 8000 meter level i've climbed at 5000 meters 6000 meters 7000 8000 meters i've climbed at all of those levels before i went to everest so again cumulatively you start to take on different challenges i never had everest as my overall end goal or anything like that i climbed i enjoyed it i came away i thought well if i can do that i can do the next one um there might be a gap of a few months or maybe even up to a year and then i go do another higher one another more difficult one so your skills are accumulating your competence your confidence and your climbing cv maybe if you like internally to yourself and what do you get out of it what do you what's the enjoyment of getting to those heights um well 
Everest is a little bit different. So put that to one side. Let's say all the other kind of mountains that I would have um, would have climbed. The enjoyment, I guess, comes from setting yourself a goal, working towards something, and then it working out. Ideally, it doesn't always work out. Certainly not always when, when I go climbing. Um, I like the, say, looking at something which is a longer term project like Everest or other other stuff I've climbed I really enjoy the whole process of getting there so you know say for example if you're training for a year or, or something like that um, I'll obsess over every little bit of gear I'll have all of that you know I'll buy so many different things and a lot of them's not available in Ireland um, I'll buy three versions of it try them all out send back two versions you know down to incredible levels of detail I'll read up on the mountain i mean um you know i have i have a first edition of the very first reconnaissance a book effectively of the very first reconnaissance of mount everest where you know the original maps are there i'll read that in before i go to bed for enjoyment like it's it, it's i would say like a minor obsession of all the little detail and then of course all the training that goes into it there's an incredible amount of like uh, different types of training you'll need to do and then meeting different people who will have climbed the mountain or other s- similar stuff before so it's kind of like immersing yourself in a whole thing for a year and i love that it'll be i'd much rather read you know when i'm training for some of these things i'd much rather buy some incremental new piece of gear or spend some time reading a book about maps about everest than watching netflix at 9 p.m at night so it just becomes kind of like a positive obsession Okay, to get to Everest, to get to the top of Everest, I was quite surprised to discover that you're the 56th Irish person, I think, to get to the top. Yeah. And that's not in any way to take away from the incredible achievement that it, I, I was surprised because that's over in the space of about 25, 30 years. And more and more people are doing it and yeah. more and more people are achieving it. But when you get to Everest, it's by no means guaranteed that when you do try to get to the top that you will get there. You're dependent on your the weather, your teammates, all the rest of it. So just briefly describe for me what your journey to the top of Everest was like. From when I actually get on the mountain, um, again, you know, uh, years of climbing other mountains and um, maybe a year specifically with Everest in mind. First of all, you need to get to base camp, which lots of people may, might be familiar with. It's a very much a, a kind of a trek that's available to anybody who climbs in the you know Irish mountains or hikes or done something like Kilimanjaro would um, you know might have heard of trekking to base camp so you get into Kathmandu you get on the road and it's about I don't know exactly maybe about 40 or 50 kilometer trek over the pace of depends what you want to do it let's call it a week and increase you know you're gradually increasing altitude now you go from I don't know maybe 2,000 you get into base camp which is five five thousand. 300 I think and to put that into perspective it's higher than any mountain in the Alps or in Western Europe already so even base camp where you're only getting started so that takes about a week and then you know your challenge before you go for the summer push is to acclimatize your body so there's only one real way of doing that and that is uh, gradually increase the exposure to altitude so to do that you know, there's different routes in which you would have done it differently 20 years ago on, on Everest. Uh, to avoid one of the particular dangerous points of Everest, I did some of my acclimatization on on, uh, on other areas around Everest. So we went and climbed Lobochi, which is 6,000 something meters, which is a decent sized mountain. Um, but it is, again, non-technical, no particular danger with it, only the altitude. So you go and you acclimatize on other mountains. And then at some stage you say, well, I need to start doing 
real acclimatization, which is 7,000 meters on Everest. And so you start going up and down through Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, the same thing you're going to do for the eventual push. But with this, what you're doing is just gently exposed, or maybe not so gently, exposing your body to altitude, then coming back down to base camp and resting. What does altitude do to your body? Um... I'll give you my layman's version of it. I think, you know, actually, e- even amongst the medical community, it's not all exactly clear. Okay, but um, what did it do to you? Um, well, there's two things. First of all, there's the lack of oxygen. And the second thing is there's lack of pressure. So actually, the percentage of oxygen in, uh, in the air at sea level is the exact same as at the top of Everest. What you're missing is the pressure. So the actual number of oxygen molecules that you take in in a breath will be far lower at the top of Everest because of pressure not because of a mix in the in the air necessarily so I don't know exactly what it is but it's something like I don't know 75% less oxygen at the top of Everest than there is here at sea level so it is substantial so there's first of all there's the kind of things that can go wrong with lack of oxygen and that really will come down to your brain not function properly, you getting very cold, especially the extremities of your body. That's why people sometimes lose fingers and toes and stuff like that. Um, but there's also another one that is probably less understood um, or less commented on, which is just the lack of pressure. And, um, and in, you know, in non-medical person's terms, that can have all kinds of effects on you. Like, so if your digestive system is not working correctly, and also some of the very serious things you can, you can get, like there's, there's a thing called hape, which affects your lungs. It's not lack of oxygen necessarily. It's just that at that height, with the lack of pressure substantially lower, your, um, uh, your blood vessels don't... Uh, function properly and sometimes they start to leak and that actually can be the cause of some of the problems with your lungs so it's it's uh, the body is not meant to survive at plus 8,000 meters certainly not at 8,800 meters and the only way you can maybe um, get good at climbing very high mountains is practice and slow exposure and then retreat and then you know go a little bit go a little bit more so what about the effect on the brain and decision making that's certainly a big problem. I climbed with supplementary oxygen, which certainly helps in terms of your decision making. But I would say the biggest thing that helps with your decision making is effectively everything should be rote learning or rote learned by the time you get on Everest. There should be nothing that you're having to, uh, you know, vex your brain in terms of thinking when you're on the climb. Everything should be automatic. The way in which you interact with other climbers, the way in which you manage all your own gear. There is nothing that complicated about any of it. It's just that with the reduced cognitive function that you get from less oxygen, you need to be able to do everything automatically. So taking care of yourself, the way in which you manage when you take off your gloves, making sure you don't drop one of them. That sounds like an incredibly simple thing. Those things can be actually quite hard at the top. Because if you were to lose a glove, you would eventually eventually lose your hand, would you? And if you're in the wrong place, if you lose the ability to use your hand, you lose the ability to climb. That means you can't get down. That means you're in real trouble. Were you ever fearful? No, I was quite um, happy with the way my expedition went. I would say I have a particular ethos in terms of the way that I've learned from other people, by the way, like professional climbers, um, in terms of how I'd like to be able to climb something like Everest. And it went the way I wanted it to. But essentially, like, um, you know, the way, you know, you, you talk about this with some of the professional sports people you have on your show. You get a rugby player in a Heineken Cup final. 
they talk about make sure you leave absolutely everything on the pitch. You know that kind of idea? Yes. It's quite, quite common in those sports. That is not how you want to climb Everest. <clears throat> you do not want to get to the top absolutely exhausted. Because and you still have to get back down. You still have to get back down. <laughs> in fact, you don't even want to get to the bottom being completely exhausted. In my mind, competence, professionalism in, mount, in high altitude mountaineering is all about how much redundancy you have across many different variables. So your physical competence, have you got plenty of energy left? Have you got enough oxygen left? Have you got uh, enough time left? Have you got the right weather window? And is your gear all right? There's actually maybe 10 or 15 of these variables and you want headroom across them all. And essentially the reason for that is to stop the spiral. That's what really gets people, is that one thing goes wrong. Say, for example, they're not physically fit enough to climb or, you know, they're too exhausted. Um, that's fine. You may well get to the top and where you get down. But what if that then occurs with you going very slowly? And as you go slow, the weather changes. And so a particular weather window closes on you and the wind comes up. Now you've got another problem. Are you good enough to cope with that? And then all of a sudden you take a glove off and now the glove is gone and now the spiral has started. So what you want to do is to be a good climber is a no drama. Everything went as it was expected. One or two things might go wrong, but you can cope with them. Uh, and you get back down and you're not in bits because as i said many people have climbed everest but equally many people have died on everest haven't they i mean and how yeah. cognizant are you of that i guess this the reason i the, the way i describe my ethos and climbing or it's not exactly mine plenty of people climb like that is because i believe that you can mitigate the vast majority of the risk with the a kind of approach i've talked about so i didn't train to just be able to get to everest i trained to be able to do it and have plenty of headroom uh, physically um and and the way I work with the people I, you know, I, I climbed with, all that kind of stuff. I climbed with the Sherpa, but with no guide. I felt I had more than enough skills myself that I didn't necessarily need a guide. But obviously, you know, everyone but the real the real top guys climb with, with Sherpas. So um, I never was really that fearful. They, you know, we've been a bit unlucky. That's the wrong word. But in, you know, Irish, we, we had a number of deaths with, you know, sorry, it's obviously not more than unlucky. Uh, deaths, uh, I think the Irish death rate is about 7%. Um, internationally, it's a bit lower than that. Um, the Irish success rate is about 50% um, historically. It was quite a bit lower this year. We had quite a number of climbers who didn't make it this year, um, individual reasons. So, um, And I weather. You're also dependent on the weather, aren't you? Very much, yeah. So you spend so you know you spend six plus weeks, or you know over a month, let's call it, waiting around, acclimatizing all that kind of stuff, and you look for the weather window. Some years it might come in and it might only be one day. This year we had quite a good weather. And window. And then there are lots of other people trying to use that window to get up as well. It's almost competitive to get the pass ahead of somebody else. That's it. And so again, you have to go back to like how much redundancy have you got in your overall system? Have you sent up a spare bottle of oxygen and is it placed in the right place? Have you enough physical capability in terms of the training you've been doing for several years that you can overtake people overtaking is very difficult but you know if you're if you want to avoid those cues are you leaving at a time in which you know that you're going to cross all the people or overtake the vast majority of, of slow mover guys at the right 
part. You can't overtake them at the end. The last hour or two is not for overtaking. You want to do that, like you know, on summit push. You want to do that several hours ahead. What's it like to get to the top? Describe reaching the top of Everest. <laughs> well, first of all, I should say that like it worked again. Going back to just describing, it worked out extremely well for me. Um, I left camp, uh, you know, with a certain plan as to how long it was going to take climbing through the night. Um, and we moved quite a bit faster than we'd expected. Sorry, you climb through the night. Is that not dangerous, doing it in the dark? Um, no, it's actually safer, really. What you're trying to do is, you know, at, at night it's colder, so there's less chance of rockfall. So basically the rock and ice stick together, um, and once the sun comes up, then there's an increased chance that little bits of rock or ice will fall off and hit you. So, you know, you're trying to uh, avoid that, essentially. Um, so we climbed through the night and effectively the night I climbed was it, the night before was a full moon but effectively felt like a full moon might as well have been so uh, decent uh, very decent conditions and it was going so well actually we got to a certain point called the South Summit or maybe even a little bit before it and um, we were going too fast so we actually for the last two hours we slowed down um, which is a great position to be in you know that you know you have all your redundancies in place everything is safe and you're in complete control of the the objective which is which for me was um, to get there just at dawn so actually something like that is you know that for me was the successful part I'm thinking more about that that like you know looking at all the different things that I need to be in control of and that I've planned for and and everything is going well that was giving me a lot probably more satisfaction the ability to completely control the um the climb and pace and and, and our agenda but then I got up there for dawn so dawn and is there Everest. a moment of elation when that happens um is there a moment of elation um yeah, I was, I don't think, no, it's not like some incredible, superfluous, amazing, joyous occasion. No, I didn't have that. Uh, you still have to be quite dialed in. I came off oxygen. I was up there for about half hour and I came off oxygen for the half hour I was there. Which, which Why did you do that? Out. Because I was in control of everything. I had, I had no physical exhaustion. I came off it and I tried it for a while. And otherwise you just can't do your videos. And so I have a bunch of videos I wanted to send to friends and family. And otherwise you can't talk. Um, so um, that... That, that was no problem when I was up there, but you still have to be dialed in. I mean, if the if the wind was a bit higher, um, if we, it was later in the day and it had started to get colder or any of those kinds of things, maybe I wouldn't have been able to. But again, everything was kind of going according to plan. So I was, again, probably happier that, I, you know, I was like thinking to myself, not, oh, I'm on the top of Everest, it's incredible. I was thinking to myself, everything is going well. Oh, you're off oxygen, this is going great, and you're half an hour off it. They are the kind of things. Now, on the way down, you do start to think a little bit, because you have a little bit more time. You come two or three hours off the summit, and you can start to enjoy it a little bit. You just say to yourself, wow, it, it's done. That's, yeah, I've got up there. What's the view like up there? The view is incredible, absolutely unbelievable. Again, I got up there... Uh, I, I took, I wouldn't call it a risk, but a calculated uh, guess with the with a guy called Arnold Coster, who's down at base camp, who's, um, you know, organizing the expedition at base camp and all that kind of stuff. He's on the radio with me. He's got um, the satellite forecast from a crowd in Switzerland and you're integrate you know, you're in chatting. Arnold has incredible experience. He's done 20 Everest expeditions. Now he doesn't climb with me, but he's down at base camp. And between myself and Arnold, we made the decision to uh, take a bit of a bet and let 
vast majority of the climbers go ahead of us. So the weather window opened up and there's a clamor for everybody to go to the top. And the weather was so perfect, it's hard to sit at base camp. But we, I did, um, you know, and it, it all paid off beautifully because by the time I went several days later for, you know, um, uh, there was almost nobody else on the mountain. So I had the summit almost to myself at dawn with perfect weather, um, which is basically as good as it gets. Couldn't it be more dangerous coming down than going up? Yeah, most deaths are on the way down. Because why is that? Is it just more difficult technically, the climbing? Or could it also be that perhaps the adrenaline of having got to the top might yeah. impact on people on the way down? Yeah, it's definitely not more technical. Everest is not a particularly technical mountain. But again, it's at such high altitude and there's such low margin for error. You, you have to do all the simple things right. Um, but the probable reason for more people dying on the way down is exhaustion. You've got the adrenaline to get you to the top and then maybe they've overcooked it and not really realized what's required to get back down. But the other thing is that gets you is, again, most people do this thing that you climb, leave camp for, you go for the summit um, at night. Um, if you're slow, what will happen is everything will start, the negative spiral will start. You get up to the summit late, then the wind starts picking up and then you're on the way down. Now you've got heavy wind and you took so long getting up, you've exhausted too much of your oxygen. Now there's no oxygen reserves and maybe then the winds, you start to flap or get worried because you haven't experienced this much wind before or something like that. Um, and uh, or you lose a piece of equipment or you know you've now been climbing for 15 hours and if you've not done that before that can be quite tiring or all these kinds of things and then the negative loop happens and then that's what you know you're you know you're quite close to the limit how are you going to follow that what do you do next in your downtime your spare time because i'm going to talk to you about your professional life in a moment um i Probably will keep climbing other big mountains. Uh, I've climbed other big mountains before at 8,000 meters and 7,000 meters, stuff like that. Um, but I, I was uh, incredibly surprised at the anybody. They, I'm from a place called Castle Connor in West Sligo, and there was a huge amount of interest in me climbing Everest, which was a huge surprise to me because honestly, I only told most, I only told my parents my, maybe two weeks before I left. And a lot of my friends only found out when I started, you know, I, I just put it up on my Instagram that I was heading off. Um, so I was quite surprised because it, it's been in my head a long time. And um, when I think about the most challenging mountains I want to climb, um, Everest was on the list right now, but by the time I finish climbing, if I'm an old man and look back, I'd be very surprised if Everest was the highlight of my climbing career. So I have a lot of mountains I'd like to climb, but they won't be high or famous. There's incredible ones in, you know, there's, uh, it, it's, it, it's also certain routes on a particular mountain. So, you know, it's the North face of the Eiger, maybe in the Alps or the summer, you know, there's some great rock climbing. So, you know, there's broadly speaking three types of climbing, you know, high, mountaineering, which is kind of like advanced hiking. There's alpine climbing and, and then there's rock climbing. And I, instead of just going all in on one type of like mountaineering, which is Everest, um, I'd like to increase my competence across the other two types of, of climbing as well, because they're more skills focused. Um, there's less to do with random chance. And um, and I could see how I could continue, you know, being obsessed and wanting to read books and do stuff uh, instead of watching Netflix and so.
Okay, I want to ask you about your um, professional career as well, because the first time I ever met you was about three years ago. You were speaking at a conference that I was chairing, and I was fascinated by your opinions on the future of work. Now, I wonder, is this the most up-to-date bio that I could find of you, if it's still relevant? It describes you as co-founder of the Global Business of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics course at MIT's Sloan School of Management, a lecturer in global economics and management at MIT, and an adjunct professor at Trinity College Dublin, former Fulbright recipient and technology entrepreneur. So, an academic but you were an entrepreneur and you've successfully developed a business yeah. and sold it before you committed fully to academia. Tell us about that. Um, the business, uh, I, I guess the, the origin of the particular business was that I wanted to start a business. And so it was simple as that. I just felt the desire to try my hand at entrepreneurship. At what stage of your career were you at? Then? Oh, uh, late 20s. Yeah, and um, I had um, uh, experience. I had spent some time working for a very uh, big multinational Procter and Gamble, and I had run a, a large business for them. But of course, you're just a steward of the business, really. You know, um, at these very large companies, the business was there a long time before me, and it'll be there a long time after what me. What sort of business was it? Um, uh, feminine hygiene, which is essentially always in Tampax. And you so, ran that business. Yeah, yeah, and I was based in the UK out of London. And I, I spent a couple of years there. And although it doesn't sound like an extremely glamorous business, I suppose it probably sounds like an unglamorous business. It's an extremely profitable business. And it's the kind of business that you'd absolutely love to own. And within one of these very large multinationals, it's a kind of like, um, you know, uh, a really valuable, useful asset um, hidden within a very large corporation. At the time, P&G, when I joined them, um, still are one of the biggest companies in the world. Of course, they actually make things, so they've now been eclipsed by all the tech companies. Um, but it was a great place to work. They were one of the stalwarts of globalization. You know, they were a company that came out of the United States. They effect- effectively invented marketing as we know it, the idea of brand management or marketing. Um, and I ended up working with some incredible people. Of course, you don't know at the time, but like we worked on these great businesses that are all very boring, like Pampers and Tampax and stuff like that. But they're all essential items. Essential items. And they're all billion dollar businesses or multi-billion dollar businesses especially on a global basis um and some you know so some i worked with some great people and you've gone on i remember there was a guy called paul pullman he ran the he ran one of the divisions at the time and he's gone on to be ceo of unilever even my my old my last boss there was a guy called mark given and he's on the uh board of sainsbury's now and and all kinds of people like this that were like gone on to great things because there's a great proven ground for how to run a business and i bought into that i thought well i've ran a big business for png i must know about how to run businesses um, and I think I'll start a business. I managed to convince my brother to join me. He was a engineer at Intel at the time, and I managed to convince him to leave with the vague notion that we'll just do something, we'll start something, and we'll figure it out as we go along. 
Um, and we spent a good, you know, maybe I can't remember exactly, like four or five years working on that from absolutely having no idea to come to trying a few different things. And it, it became a nice little business, but it was really so a lifestyle business. what sort of things did you try? Well, well, what kind of thing? Most things when we say we tried, I mean, we tried them in our heads, or at least we went and talked to five different people or stuff like that. Um, you know, in the end, what we, we, we actually built a software company that it sounds outdated now, but we thought, well, the cloud is going to be big. We figured this big inside, which sounds obviously trivial right now but at the time it wasn't well we thought it was guaranteed to happen but it wasn't a big trend insofar as um yes cloud storage was an option but a lot of industries had not adopted cloud delivery of software what became essentially SaaS software and so we looked for we we thought this is a thesis and we said well let's look for an industry that that we can take from on-premises software where they run everything on you know locally and is well suited to trying to, to bring it into the cloud and so our focus was on hotel software that's kind of where we decided to start and we had grand ambitions that we were gonna you know at the time you went to check in for your um your hotel room and the software that was running that was a, in a, on a rack in the basement in the hotel. And we figured, well, this is crazy. We should be able to run all this. Instead of when updates need to happen, a CD was sent out and they put it into the rack and then they upgraded the software and they paid an awful lot for the service and everything. We figured, well, the, all this should be run in the cloud. Um, I'm trying to think of the dates now, but it's like, you know, more than 10 years. It's about, let's call it 10 or 15 years ago from now. Um, and so we thought it was so obvious. What we probably fail to appreciate is how long industries take to adopt new technology sometimes. Um, and um, we were very naive to all of that. So we got, we, we started the business. We figured out a little niche within that. We, you know, we were backed by some VCs here in Dublin. Um, some, uh, you know, really generous people in terms of of their uh, belief in us at this stage we're two brothers working out of a um a um not a garage literally but uh, you know upstairs downstairs in a kind of house and um we actually got customers we had revenue before we ever got vc and uh, they backed us and then it was a nice small business but the truth is it was a lifestyle business and um we never either like developed it sufficiently i think you know looking back i had a lot i have to take a lot of responsibility because insofar as you know if you're the ceo and the the entrepreneur uh, there was so much stuff i didn't know i made so many mistakes but thankfully we i i made few enough that we could actually make a decent business out of it and we ended up selling it which was which is an ideal exit for 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 us and did you sell it for a reasonable sum of money no like not life-changing but like it gave me the ability that uh, I didn't have to go to work the next day. I could take time and figure out what it is exactly I wanted to do next. And it gave me the opportunity to just be able to say, um, yeah, for the next couple of years, I can do whatever I want if I need to, you know, if I want to. And what about it. your brother? Did he ever regret leaving Intel and talked out of his <laughs> job by you? <laughs> You'd have to ask himself. I mean, he is a real proper tech you know like yeah software engineer i i don't think he ever wanted to be involved in the management of a company i don't think that was in any way interesting to him so when he when i think about building something i suppose what i i didn't know how to vocalize this at the time but i was thinking about building an organization and what he was thinking about is building software so there was enough overlap in that venn diagram for us to start a business together but long term he doesn't want to be a c a cto of companies he wants to be a coder a developer and and, and that's what he does where does this all come from you're from west Sligo so was yeah. this 
something that your parents encouraged in you or how did this where did you go to school how, where did you go to college how did this all develop I don't know if there's any, again there's, if there's you know the trying to plot out the, the rear view mirror and pretend it was all like um, planned or some, some sort of master plan um, so we grew up on a farm in the in, in a place called Castle Connor and myself and my brother there's only a year we're like an Irish twins barely a year between us and he was always more inclined towards um, software engineering. It was interesting listening to Bobby Healy when he was on your previous show. Uh, he was talking about, I think it was a Sinclair computer. That's right, yes. Yeah, and, you know, my brother started coding on, like, Amstrad, was it Amstrad 64, Amstrad 464, something like that. As soon as, you know, we got an Amstrad into the house, which I would use for gaming, he would use for coding, and he was coding in, in basic, I think it was the language at the time. So that was always where he was going. It was all, you know, he was, if he wasn't doing that, he was taking apart radios or whatever. But we grew up on a farm. I, you know, my, my mother mainly worked at home at the time. Um, or, you know, she had other jobs like she does market research and stuff like that. My father was in the army, which meant sometimes myself and my brother were doing, you know, um, a good bit of farm work. He, we, he would, you know, when we were growing up, he would go to Lebanon and stuff. And so it would be left us. But it's only a small farm. But, you know, you can still make lots of work no matter the size of the farm. Um, and um, our parents were not necessarily encouraging us to do a certain thing or not. It was like whatever we wanted to do. You know, <clears throat> I think, I, you know, I, I suppose I didn't really, I had probably some intuition for this as I got older, but uh, the more time I spend, or, you know, I am in the global economics group at, at, at Sloan, at MIT, and so now I have a better data-based view of the world in terms of the global economy. Um, but I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that, you know, people maybe of my age or something close to that, growing up in Ireland, we have been one of the luckiest generations, not just of Irish people, but of like of human beings that have ever lived. We've basically come, of course, the world has ex has has had this massive increase in longevity of life and quality of life. But if you grew up in Ireland in the 80s, I mean, um, one of the basic, you know, lowest rungs of the economic ladder is textile manufacturing. And the world's largest T-shirt manufacturer was in Donegal. It was Fruit of the Loom. Fruit of the Loom. So we've gone from being a developing economy to being a economy in which you know the world's largest manufacturers of pharmaceuticals are based here as well as all the world's largest tech companies and uh, we do life sciences here we are at the forefront of making the most advanced valuable things in the world microchips at intel or uh, drugs with pfizer or or, or um, software i guess with google and so that's all happened in one generation that I grew up in. We've had a phenomenal increase in the quality of life in this country. And if you take that one generational story and you try to look for a comparison around the world, it's almost impossible. Now, maybe you could argue some, some people in Singapore received it. But when I look at the people I went to national school with and the lives that we all now have, I don't think any of us could have really expected it at the time. So I grew up in very rural Ireland. The expectations, you know, my knowledge of the world was from encyclopedias. Um, there was no internet at the time. Um, what age are you now? Uh, 42. Okay. Yeah, so I would say that... 
you know, um, this, you know, definitely Ireland's not perfect by any, but, but I feel like we're extremely lucky. Things have gone really, really well. And they haven't all gone by accident, you know, success of leadership in this country and the people themselves. But it's been, yeah, I feel very, very lucky. There's loads of people I know who grew up in that kind of environment who have gone on to amazing things all around the world. And that can't be said for many countries in the world. Having worked in business in Procter & Gamble in management, having then gone to be an entrepreneur, what brought you into academic life? I'd always done a little bit of it. I had enjoyed it. Even when I was doing the company, I had I had done some lecturing in UCD. There was a professor there, Rory O'Shea, who kind of brought me in. I think I did one or two guest lectures, and then um, I had started doing, uh, taking full, cl- or, you know, giving full classes. And, you know, I, I wa- like I said, at the end of the, when we sold the company, I had the opportunity to kind of do different things. Um, I had the idea that I certainly wasn't the uh, finished article when it came to entrepreneurship. Um, and I felt like, not just you know, act, you know the 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 active sport of running a company or starting one, but just generally my knowledge of business and 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 how the economy works and all that kind of stuff. So, I had the idea that I wanted to go and explore it in. In other domains, I didn't think that Ireland would, you know, although, you know, I can't say enough good things about it. Obviously, it has its limits. And if you want to really push the envelope academically or, you know, you know, in the whole wider business sense, there's a, you know, America's kind of not always, but it's, you know, it's kind of where it's at. So um, I had the opportunity then I didn't, I had enough academics that I squeezed into MIT. I went there for one year on the Fulbright and I thought that's all I would do. And I ended up meeting some incredible people who, um, essentially they offered me a job at the end of it. Um, and I ended up working with these incredible people and I absolutely loved it. As soon as I landed in Cambridge, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I, I don't know what I, I don't, I didn't know there was places like this out there and I want to stay here. I don't know how exactly. Why? What, what is it about the place that's so special? Um, I'll just speak to my experience, of course, you know, not everybody, but like, um, first of all, it's not a big place. Somewhere like MIT, for perspective, there's only about 4,000 undergrads at the whole place. I don't think that would even make it into the, any of the Irish universities in terms of numbers. Like it's smaller than UCD or Trinity or DCU I'm or just UIG. thinking, I was in UCC recently and we were talking about when I was there back in the 1980s, there were 6,000. Okay. It's now about 26,000. So that gives you a perspective. MIT is a fraction of this. I think there's like 900 new undergrads a year. Or let's call it 1,000. Now, it is predominantly there than a, a, a research institute on top of that. So there'll be another, there'll be more grad students. But you're still talking about a, a student population less than 10,000 um, so so first of all it's very small so it's not that hard to or even accidentally bump into people but second of all um, I found it so open honestly like no once you're in the community nobody is talking about well you know um, you have no right to ask questions like that get back in your place or it's time you need to serve your time before you can start doing x y or z there was just none of that it was so open i think there was just a general feeling that there's an abundance going on now there's huge amounts of resources so as opposed to you know most european or irish universities um which are resource constraints in terms of money and you know all that kind of stuff somewhere like mit there's just an abundance so if you've got a good idea 
it's not hard to raise money. It's not hard to get grad students. It's not hard to do all these kinds of things. Um, so maybe that can help. But I was also probably intoxicated by some of the like superstar people. Um, you know, I might uh, just in the econ department, I'd have to check again. But I think we've, I say we, I mean, I've had nothing to do with it. But I say we because I'm just part of, I'm paid by You're the part same employer. Team, no. and, well, this, this wasn't a team effort. But I think they've won five Nobel Prizes in the last six years in the economics department alone. So um, you're talking about like, I, I remember my first year there when, um, I'm trying to think which of the lads um, won the Nobel Prize that year. I can't really remember. But anyway, there was like, you know, a lunchtime email goes out and says, oh, well, you know, can everybody assemble at the foyer because, uh, you know, somebody in the department won the Nobel Prize today. And I go down and there's only like 20 or 30 people there. It's an e and so... Um, I doubt they win Nobel Prizes. You can say you've climbed Everest. How many of them? <laughs> well, I don't think any of the Nobel Prize winners have climbed Everest. So maybe I have that on them, but that's about it. Yeah. So it's just like this people, there's all these amazing people and yet they're incredibly open. None of those people would say, well, why are you here? And, you know, you go in there. I felt like an imposter around the place. And yet everybody's incredibly open. And, um, you know, the, you know, the uh, senior tenured professor who essentially kind of liked me and was like, okay, you need to stay around. There's a guy called Simon John. Johnson and he was former chief economist at the IMF, one of the most, you know, like a highly published uh, economist around the world and everything. And, you know, I went to him with some work and some ideas and he was like, yeah, okay, well, we need to keep you around. Just like make that happen. When you've co-authored some material. Yeah, that. I've worked okay. with Simon a lot since and we teach together and he's on sabbatical at the moment, uh, writing a book and, um, but we've done loads of work together and we continue to do so. Yeah, great guy. about the sort of work that you're interested in and this i said earlier this is where i first met you at an event in dublin uh, you're you're fascinated with the way we're going to work in the future is yeah that, that's your area of expertise isn't yeah it? Well, i guess like um i suppose the broader area would be called digital economics how do technologies in particular probably you know i'm interested in advanced technologies how are they changing the economy business models um, the way we make money, the way we work, the way we spend our leisure time, that kind of whole area. And so to do that, you have to have an understanding of quite a few different areas, which suits me. I kind of like broader rather than deeper. And I'm lucky enough to work with plenty of people who go so deep I can I can um, steal from them. Sorry, uh, uh, leverage from them. Um, and so, you know, to do that kind of work, you have to maybe zone in on a couple of technologies. So I have two main ones that I look at. Um, the longer you've been around, you know, the really top guys, they can they can start to look at all the technologies that happen. But that's, you know, um, maybe a bit harder. I, I like to really zone in and work with advanced technology researchers to understand exactly what's going on. The two main ones I work on is like AI, which includes robotics, and then more recently on quantum computing. And just to really understand what exactly is going on with these technologies. Okay, they're embryonic, relatively speaking, today. Certainly quantum is. We can see plenty of evidence yeah, of AI. Actually, what is quantum computing? Um, well, now, do we have another hour for that one? <laughs> no, we don't. So I want a really succinct 
explanation because I think most people are probably aware of artificial okay. intelligence at this stage. They've yeah. heard enough about it, although I will ask you to explain sure. a bit more about that in a moment. But what is quantum computing and how is it going to change everything? Um, it is a different type of computing than we are used to. So everything we've got right now, let's call it classical computing. And effectively, it all works off ones and zeros. And so um, we're all kind of familiar with that. Quantum computing is still very, very embryonic, but it works off a different system. Instead of bits, it's qubits. And qubits have the capability of not just representing one or zero, but almost effectively an infinite amount of combinations of one or zero. And so if you can string enough of these qubits together, you can create a computing, a type of computing that classical computers will never be able to replicate. And I don't mean we just need to give it enough time. I mean, mathematically speaking, they will never be able to compete with an advanced quantum computer, um, simply because uh, the, the, the amount of computation explodes exponentially. And therefore, you can add as many supercomputers as you want. They won't be able to keep up with the quantum. And what's the consequence of that? That means that quantum computing will, and starting to, offer new types of computation. You have to really go all the way down, which most people don't have to think about anymore. You have to really go down to the foundational level of kind of information or computer science to understand the limitations of, of regular computers. And so what it will be very good at is, or offers the potential for, is stuff like... Um, chemistry. So I should note as well, there are lots of research areas in the world that are exploratory. But what's great about quantum computing is the people who work in it know that it can work. We just don't know how to do it yet. And the reason is, this is how nature computes. So if you look at um, something like uh, nitrogen production, which is used for um, fertilizer, effectively, all around the world. We're still using a 100-year-old process called the Haber-Bosch process, which use, consumes an, an enormous amount of energy. Uh, about 2% of the world's energy is used in the production of fertilizer, which enables us, 8 billion people, to effectively live uh, on an amount of land that otherwise would not be possible for us to all get enough calories. But we know that the uh, nitrogen, or the let's call it the uh, fertilizer production process, is done by nature much more energy efficiently. We just don't know how to do it, and we don't know how to model it, and we're never going to have a computer big enough to be able to do it. But a quantum computer offers the potential, because of the way it works off these qubits rather than just uh, ones and zeros, that it may be able to find out unlock the secrets of nature effectively simulation of in the computer what goes on in nature so it's a very exciting area it's extremely difficult engineering um, one of the main guys I work with the guy I've co-authored with and uh, teach classes with at MIT Will Oliver who's I think I don't can't remember he's a professor across three different areas at MIT one of the top quantum physicists in the world uh, I think he's maths physics and computer science professor and that's the kind of level you need he works on a particular type of quantum computers where you need to chill you need to co uh, to bring down the temperature effectively on the chip so they create these chandelier, enormous chandelier-sized environments in which they bring the temperature down to the coldest place in the entire universe. And I don't say that 
you know, just colder than it. the top of Everest. Colder <laughs> than the top of Everest. We know the temperature at the edge of the universe, the coldest parts of the universe. We can we know how close it is to absolute zero, and they create an environment that's colder in their labs at MIT. And you know, it's fascinating. I've brought some people around the labs, and you're like, okay, in there is the coldest place in the entire universe, and so you bring it down so cold so you can control the atoms, and that's quantum. You know, part of the, one of the processes that we're trying. And, sorry, and your role is actually the understanding of the application of all of this. Yeah, exactly. Because vast majority of people who are so deep in the development of these technologies probably aren't spending too much time thinking about, well, what difference will this make to the economy? But if you, you know, I do some work with like US policy and all that kind of stuff, but those guys care about it. And, you know, economists care about it and business people care about it. So I work with the, you know, the, like say the, the physics professor there uh, with Will and, you know, we publish together in, I don't know, in stuff like that will translate, it will be read like Harvard Business Review or something like that. So, you know, managers are interested in where is this going to, what application will this have in a couple of years time? And, you know, my role, I guess, in, in, in those kind of conversations is to understand the technology enough to be able to explain it to someone else. Talk to me about artificial intelligence and particularly the fears that people have about how it'll lead to more and more automation and the loss of jobs. Or given what we've seen as the sort of the post-pandemic job environment, yeah. is that actually going to help now that we actually don't have enough people to fill many of the roles and that automation and artificial intelligence actually is going to become even more important and positive for us? Well, this is a really hot area of uh, conversation, I guess, amongst technologists and academics and economists and stuff at this stage. But, and I think the questions you've asked are, are vitally important, but they sit within a context of a kind of a broader, longer term view of what's been happening in, the, in, in various economies. Um, Especially the large ones in particular is the you know the U.S. Ireland is a little bit different. I'm happy to talk about that. But um, you know, really large economies like the U.S. We've seen. Look, this is not the first technology that's come along. It's not the first technology that can automate, etc. But uh, what we've seen, certainly amongst the large tech companies and the owners of the tech companies, is that generally the productivity boom that's meant to come along from technology hasn't been evident in quite a while. So in the US, we're still at a very slow rate of productivity improvement of maybe 1%. And that sounds like, well, who cares? Like, what's that got to do? That's probably since about 2005. We had, we had decent productivity, maybe twice that in the, in the eight years before that. But productivity at 1%, to give you a perspective, that means that it will take 70 years, roughly speaking, for the lifestyle, for the living standards uh, of people in that country to double. Now, if you can take the productivity from 1% to 2%, roughly speaking, you can have that in 35 years. So you can have an entire lost generation there, you know, 35 years, roughly speaking, because the difference between 1% and 2% productivity. So we've seen all these amazing technologies come into the world, and yet we're not seeing the productivity gains. So that's one problem we're seeing. And artificial intelligence will fit into all of this. But the second thing we're saying is even the productivity gains that are coming, we know they're not being evenly distributed. We, that's very clear from global economies. It's clear in Ireland, it's clear in America, it's clear across the world. And so the social contract that we have typically looked at in the past that like all technology is good. 
because it improves productivity. And if you just give it enough time, that will all trickle down to, to everybody in the economy. And that's just not happening. So when we look at the next big technology that's coming, let's call it AI, and I know it's out there already, but in terms of its penetration, the economy is still relatively small. We have to start asking the questions around, well, are we just going to see a repeat of what we've seen before in terms of um, is this just going to automate? And the problem with all, like two big things that can happen, it can either augment the human, it can either work with the human or it can automate the human and then the human at a task level is gone. And the problem is if you just automate and that, that's the simplest thing to do with AI is just take what a human is doing and automate it. Well, the problem is it leaves a large set of workers disenfranchised left on the margins and the peop- and it concentrates the power both politically and economically in the people who own the automation technologies now if you augment a human and if the human is working with the technology what you've got is a rising middle class improving wages and probably strong institutions like um like labor unions etc because the people are at work and they're now more productive than they used to be because they're working with the tech. So the augmentation versus automation is really a big focus right now. And what we're seeing with a lot of AI is it's being used for the automation rather than necessarily augmentation. Earlier, you mentioned how in your career as an entrepreneur, the products that you developed, that you maybe you were a bit too ahead of what people actually wanted. But is that actually part of the problem that with a lot of available technologies, yes, some things catch hold but for other things, people are fearful of them, fearful of adopting them. And I'll just take one example because I know previously when you've looked at the issues in relation to AI and you looked at automation, productivity, entrepreneurship, you also brought up for Ireland healthcare yeah. and digitalization. And yet, one of the things the pandemic clearly emphasized to us was, and this had been spoken about for years before the pandemic in Ireland and nothing had been done about it, our failure to digitize all of the information available in the system. Yeah. And what a wasted opportunity perhaps has come as well as a result of COVID-19 that we still haven't actually sorted out what we need to sort out in the provision of healthcare because people are protecting jobs and they seem to be afraid of actually allowing the tasks to be done automatically and digitally rather than by humans. Yeah, you know, this is a an area that I think is so pertinent to the conversation about digitization. So we can talk about AI all we want, and we talk about the penetration of uh, of AI in the economy. I mean, the world's largest procurer of fax machines was the NHS in the UK. So I don't think on a on a on a per hospital basis, I doubt Ireland is too far behind. We still use pagers and fax machines. You know, uh, my partner, she's uh, she works in the in in uh, in hospitals. She's a surgeon, and it's not unknown for Dublin hospitals as you go from uh, if you have an accident and end up in one hospital that they have to send a taxi to pick up a CD with uh, x-rays and and and, and very well I don't, I don't know various different information from the other hospital and get it brought over in a world in which that you know if <laughs> You know, I, I, look, I don't need to say any more about that. That's, that's that just sounds unbelievable, but it is true. That's what happens. That's what happens. And this is tip of the iceberg stuff. The tr- you know, the lack of digitization within the healthcare service in Ireland, um, you know, is affecting the quality and uh, of people's lives. Because if we divert resources toward towards continuously if we you know we effectively do we make the decision that we're going to continue to do everything paper-based we're going to continue to send cds 
these around in taxis. We're going to continue to do everything in a pre-digital era. That consumes resources. That stops operations happening. Let's be really clear about that. This is not just a case of, well, that's just the way things are done. And if we did it a different way, it wouldn't make that much difference. No, you'll free up resources. And we spend a lot of money on healthcare in Ireland. We could have better outputs for our patients. Um, better outputs so, means you could save lives. Saves you lives. could improve the quality of life for people by having earlier interventions. Administration, paper-based administration is a trade-off around people's lives when it comes to, when it comes to healthcare. And we haven't embraced digitization in, in the healthcare service in Ireland. And I suppose the, the, the piece you talked about, about you know, people's jobs and protecting them and all that kind of stuff, I do think it is difficult because, of course, you'd have understanding for somebody who might be late in their career, who don't feel that they're going to be able to make the transition to using this type, new type of technology. Um, but avoiding the reality that this is a trade-off between administration and saving people's lives is not going to help it. I think we just continue to uh, keep our head in the sand. We have the most advanced technologies, technology companies in the world operating in Ireland. Like w one of the roles I know some of, I don't know if they still do it because it's getting higher and higher value stuff in Ireland. But one of the things that like Facebook and Google and those types of firms certainly used to, I don't know if they still do it in Ireland, is they do global payroll. Now by global, I mean everything but the US. So they're, people, they're paying people in Timbuktu out of Dublin, you know, the payroll systems, we can cope with PRSI in, you know, in, um, in Timbuktu or in South Africa or wherever it is that the, um, and they're running it all uh, very efficiently off IT systems here in Dublin. But if you go into the healthcare service in Ireland, doctors still get paid in Galway Hospital by people who work in Galway Hospital. And then every year as they do the rotation when they're doing the training schemes, they have to come off that payroll system and then sign up with Tullamore Hospital and go on to that payroll system. By and large, they usually end up in emergency tax for six months. And I, these are trivial sounding issues, but we have the capabilities to be world-class payroll operators in Ireland, but we don't seem to be able to apply it. For me, that is not just a question of, well, isn't that a bit inconvenient for the doctors, whatever. That is a lack of resources that could be used to do operations. How frustrating do you find that? As somebody who can see all of this and who can articulate it clearly, that such things are not implemented? I think I feel very frustrated um, by seeing these things because, again, you know, we are really good at these technologies in Ireland. So it's not like, well, I've been over in Boston, I've seen some experiment in a lab in MIT. This is operationalized stuff, you know, um, that we have really strong capabilities on. And um, it is a, you know, you know, a big frustration because I think a lot of uh, public services uh, in Ireland, we're a small enough country, we should be able to manage these kind of digitization transitions. We're talking about an entire country that could have medical records. Um, and there are certain hospital networks in the United States that have more in their network than the entire Irish population. I mean, it kind of strikes me, I know it might seem simplified, but so many of the delivery of services problems we have in Ireland are database problems. Like medical records is just a big database. So we seem, if I could, if you could magically, you know, you don't need AI, you don't need really advanced technologies. We're just not good at databases in our public services. But also it just strikes me as you're mentioning that we've had many controversies in the past about documents going lost in those very taxis that you're talking about. Yeah. Our laptops 
been lost by employees and then we wonder about the safety of the records. And yet, a large part of the argument here in Ireland is, oh, well, if you go to this sort of digital thing, yeah. how will you manage to maintain privacy? How will you make sure that this isn't taken by people who shouldn't have it? We yeah. fear those things. And yet the practical examples of where things go wrong are staring us in the face all the time. And so the things that are staring us in the face, but also let's be really honest about a lot of the health care that we demand in this country, rightly demand. But where... For example, if you're on some advanced drug or whatever, where, where do you think that the tests were done for those drugs? If you look at some of the most advanced drug development now, which is using AI, you need large data sets. You need large populations of patients who have essentially given up anonymized data of their entire life, not just when they get the cancer, but a long time after it. And we're able to then delve into all that data and use it to better develop drugs. We use those drugs in Ireland. We have absolutely no problem in asking for those drugs. But yet we seem to have a problem in saying, well, you know, you can't use my database. So we can't have it both ways. If we are going to demand advanced technologies in this country, we have to go along with the fact that actually, you know, at a very, very, very marginal uh, cost, there may be some privacy implications. That's it. Like, that's the trade-off. And, um, and we need to be adult about it, accept it, and say, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be perfect. There will be implications every now and then it will go wrong, but that's life. It still is an awful lot better than the current system. At the time we're recording this podcast, I still haven't had a chance yet to publish a podcast that I've done with Donald Slattery of Avalon Aviation. And he's also involved in a, a vertical aircraft business as well. But in the podcast that you haven't had a chance to hear, so I'll have to summarize a little bit of what his idea is. He's proposing that the private sector and government get involved in a project he's spearheading called Innovate for Ireland. 300 million euro to be spent on effectively fourth level education in Ireland on research and development post third level, bringing in the best from around the world to work with Irish people on the future and all innovations. Could you see something like that in Ireland working? Um, I absolutely can see it working. I think there is few countries in the world that when we get our collective minds together and collective energy together that can deliver in, you know, really amazing projects for relatively small amounts of money. Um, I would agree that the focus should be on research. I think the focus should be on Ireland's strengths, which is, you know, trying to bring people from other parts of the world, especially as that becomes increasingly difficult for other big countries to do. Um, but, our, you know, Ireland's third level system is orientated around production of high quality graduate students and that it does very well the same cannot be said for the level of output or investment in research so if you're talking to me here about or Donald is talking about in particular around trying to increase our output on high quality research I think there's a huge opportunity Irish researchers I, you know, it's amazing what they produce, given we spend so little in this country on it. Um, and I think that uh, certainly trying to tap into that, it's an international business. You can't just decide to give Irish people the money. This just doesn't work like that. Um, but you can certainly anchor it in Ireland. That's what he's looking to do. One last thing I want to ask you about. Um, you do spend time still in Ireland because you still lecture in Trinity College, but you also, with this year, appointed to the board of RTE. So what 
do you see that you can bring to RTE? What do you hope to do as a director of the uh, state broadcaster? Um, well, I was delighted to be appointed. So I think that, you know, any addition I will have will be marginal. There's an incredible organization there who work tirelessly in the delivery of a very important public service. I believe that not, I believe that just not because I'm on the board, but that's why I apply to the board. So it can sometimes be a thankless job. I think, you know, especially any public service in Ireland, everybody thinks they are, because we're all taxpayers, everybody thinks that, um, you know, their view is very important. And I think if you're in the private sector, you get the liberty, you know, the market will decide whether you're right or wrong, but you get the liberty to decide, I'm going to ignore that group and I'm going to focus on that group. You don't get to do something like that if you're at RTE. You've got to deliver for a much wider audience. And that makes it incredibly difficult. In terms of priority setting, I mean, it's so challenging for the leadership there at RTE versus, a, versus you know, a private sector company. It's so much easier to be focused as a private sector company. So I suppose to the question that you asked about what it is that I bring, I do think that RTE is, you know, in the middle and it's been experienced this for a few years and it'll experience it for the next few years of, a, you know, a digital transformation in terms of how consumers access media of course we're seeing it move from you know terrestrial tv and all that kind of stuff um to everything being delivered over the internet and if you think about like how you go into your netflix you will see a different set of recommendations when you land in than i do and you know what will that mean in the future for someone like rte as part of a myriad of different content providers. There is no such thing as we'll just go to channel one because that's always there. That's always the first TV channel. It's not how it works. So we're going to have algorithms determining the content that's going to be delivered in front of people and it just won't be RTE. So RTE's, you know, position of always being channel number one, two, etc. that's going to be challenged. Um, and, uh, and, you know, how you operate in that environment is a big challenge traditionally if we went back 10 or 20 years i don't think anybody at rte would say the biggest skill that they need to hire for is technologists right you know whatever data scientists or or you know or digital software engineers my personal view is i think that is the biggest challenge for them for the next 10 years okay but then that brings up the issue of program making do you design programs based on algorithms or do you trust humans to have that sort of quirk to have that different way of thinking that suddenly produces something brilliant that a computer, even a quantum computer, couldn't have thought of? Uh, Well, my honest answer on that is I do think it goes back to the augmentation or automation. I think the best programming will be created by a combination of the human intuition and flair combined with data that they're getting from the markets. So, you know, if you look at the treasure trove of data that Netflix gets in terms of what people are currently watching, that informs their program makers for what they're going to make next. Of course, it doesn't guarantee success, but that combination I think is a is a good example of the kind of augmentation computers and humans working together and it will make for better quality program for for the viewers um, it will make for a more sustainable business model for you know a, a, an operator like RTE and um, yeah that's kind of the ideal Jonathan Ruan it has been terrific talking to you thank you so much for joining us on Magnified with Matt Cooper Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.